waves in the Finiverse. Live from Singapore Fintech Festival. A new way, a, a, a deeper identity, which is not just measured in a national identity, but is measured in your life performance, your life work, your contribution to society. Getting that on a blockchain actually is going to add so much value. What we try to do is we try to enable the community and we try to uh, give them tools and give them access who allows them to, uh, to build on Cardano, to believe in Cardano and to trust in Cardano. So we enable them to put a part of their supply chain and the quality control, which is one of the toughest in the wine production for export in the world, to actually prove that on the blockchain. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse, we're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm joined in the booth by Frederick Gregard, who is the CEO of Cordano Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, no, it's great to meet you because um, I'm a big fan of your blockchain. Could you introduce Cordano Foundation to our listeners? Sure. So uh, Cardano is the actual blockchain. It's a public permissionless blockchain. It's a third generation. So this is really about how you represent values, governance, and identities to the billions of people who don't have access to those kind of systems, but also about how do you upgrade the systems of the let's say, you know, wealthy world to actually get access to the medium and small income countries and how you ensure the small and medium income countries get access to a global, not just finance, but global systems of the world. The Cardano Foundation's job is really four things. One thing is about adoption. So how do we ensure that um, the right use cases is being added to the Cardano blockchain, showcasing the community um, what can be done on a real blockchain? It is about PR and marketing. So it's about how do we get to a world where everybody understands the value of blockchain and what can be done on a blockchain. It's about operational resilience. So when you have a public permissionless blockchain, it's extremely hard to roll that blockchain back if something goes wrong. Mm. It's extremely hard in a decentralized world to kind of play the, the big savior because it's, it's decentralized, right? So we need to ensure that there is safeguards and there is operational monitoring and there's tools available if something goes wrong that you know that the thousands of companies who's already betting on Cardano that you know they don't get hurt right and last but not least it's about open source and economic sustainability of the future of the ecosystem and the blockchain now uh, the Cardano blockchain uh, works on a proof of stake uh, mechanism which differs from proof of work do you mind just for our audience who may not be blockchain experts, help un, uh, untangle those two or help explain those two? Sure. Very happy to do so. So proof of work got really famous with Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think it's, a, it's an amazing blockchain when you look at the Bitcoin blockchain. But what it really does is that the security is embedded into a concept, which is about that the scarce resource is computing power which is basically a derivative of the CPU and the electricity. 
Now, that means that it costs something to attack the blockchain and it costs something for the people who is actually ending the blocks. And that was a really good first step. Now, the third generation blockchains is very much centered around what's called proof of stake. So what the scarce resource there is, is actually virtually. It's a virtual scarce resource. And there's a lot of different, different implementations of proof of stake. But the easiest way to explain Cardano is that it's a positive reinforced proof of stake blockchain. What that means is that the virtual resource is actually trust. So by doing what's called staking, what you do is you enable, uh, in the Bitcoin world, be a miner with us is a, is a stake pool operator. You enable them to have a higher chance of ending the block. And this is using game theory. And what is different from our proof-of-stake blockchain to other proof-of-stake blockchains is that we're not doing any slashing or we're not doing any lock-ins. That means that it's only positive reinforced, where a lot of other proof-of-stake blockchains has a negative reinforcement. From a finance professional or regulator or lawyer, this is very important because that means that there is no financial contract happening in the staking circle on Cardano, where there is actually on many other proof-of-stake blockchains. The other part is that we only use yeah, like a millionth fraction of the energy consumption, which is being done on a proof-of-work blockchain. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin as such is a, is, a, is a bad design. It's actually a very good design. It just means that if you want to extend the use case to identity governance and to enterprise adoption across multiple facets and features, you want to have something which doesn't necessarily take that amount of energy and that amount of e-waste, which is what people don't speak about. On many very large proof-of-work blockchains, when you do a couple of transactions, that's equivalent to taking your iPhone and throwing it out into the jungle and then praying that none of the metals and chemicals has a bad influence on the jungle. And that obviously is not exactly needed for many use cases. And that's really one of the reasons why we have a proof-of-stake blockchain. Now, um, Fred, I'm uh, I'm a little slow, so I'm going to just back this out a minute. Uh, proof of work, uh, as an example, with Bitcoin, you provide mathematical challenges to machines and those that solve them then receive some form of compensation for that. And that locks the chain for that transaction. Proof of stake instead is uh, people who are active in Cordano would put their uh, Cordano specific utility tokens uh, in an account or set aside in order to demonstrate that there are that enough people who are backing that. Is that kind of, is it a difference between having to work out a problem and depositing coins? Is that oversimplifying? Yeah, that's probably a bit oversimplifying, but if you want to nail it down to like the basics of it, right? Please. <laughs> when you're in the proof of work, aspect is really about computing power, which is right. a derivative of the CPU and the electricity you put into it and some cooling and some other stuff. But on a proof of stake, what that really is, is that you're having, um, in our case, 3,500, let's call it miners, we call it stake pool operators, they operate nodes. That means that they have a full working quote-unquote copy of the blockchain. In reality, that is the blockchain, right? So everybody has a full set of the data. They keep checking each other. So there's, you know, immutability and other things. And how you get, you know, how you get, let's say, picked in a lottery, which really is a lottery, right, to actually end the block and get a reward, basically is, is a game theory. And when you do what's called staking, what that means in Cardano is that if I'm a, 
uh, an ADA holder and you are a stake pool operator, I can stake my ADA to you. You will ADA never have being the coin of Cardano. Correct, yeah. You will never own my ADA. You will never have access to my ADA. So it's like an IOU in finance. Um, and that's what I meant with positive reinforcement. That means you cannot, you, you don't control it. It's just ba- basically a way of voting that I'm voting on you and saying, I trust you more than I trust the other one. So the more ADA, which is entrusted through this virtual action and there's no contract and you don't have access to it, the higher the likelihood that you will end the reward. At the end of the epoch, which is how we basically uh, cut down the time intervals in the blockchain, there is a, let's say a lottery going on and then a set of stake pool operators are selected. And then there is a race among those, which basically the final one is. So what it's really about is that you want to get to a situation that you have verifiable randomness because what you're trying to ensure is that nobody can guess which stake pool operator actually signs it. And that's where the security comes in. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, what are the best use cases for Cordano? Are there any uh, applications or uh, approaches that work best on this chain? Yeah. So many of us has grown up in a I have learned blockchain from Bitcoin into Ethereum, and then we kind of assume that certain things need certain actions. That means that when we think about smart contracts, we think about the ERC standards from Ethereum, for instance, which was a a fantastic way to illustrate how blockchain can use. Now, one use case I'm very much, I really like on Cardano is that you actually don't need to operate a smart contract to uh, do a token or to do an NFT. Uh, you can use what's called a native asset. That means that it becomes much more lean from a computer programming perspective, from a security perspective, and also from a finance perspective to do NFTs. So one thing we wanted to prove was that that crypto, the crypto community, is actually a community of impact. It's a community of changing the world. And we also wanted to prove that NFTs is more than a JPEG. Now, a JPEG is awesome, but the fact that you can do Uh, NFTs who keep changing or updating information, who holds regulatory information and so on, we feel we feel is an added value. So we set out uh, with a vision with our community to plant one million trees in a small area in Kenya, where we wanted to ensure that every single tree was an NFT. We also wanted to ensure that there was no front runner, so no big investor like a foundation who just you know put the money in. So we wanted to ensure that this was a community-led project, and we wanted to ensure that regulators, um, you know, trust anchors and so on, would really wake up and see that the blockchain can be used different. So with a very short amount of time, we actually got the money to plant 1 million trees. We ensured with our partner Veritree there that every single tree is not double counted, that Internet of Things is connected to it. So we're talking about, you know, uh, sensors, about the, mm-hmm. the wind and the growth. We're talking about people on the ground with Android phones who's all riding directly to the blockchain. What can be measured can be put on the chain. And that basically updates the NFT. So when you have one of those NFTs, you have the regulatory information on chain, not in a centralized server. It's being updated on a monthly basis about the growth and so on. And there's a carbon certificate associated with that. Uh, and that basically led to a situation, hopefully, that we are getting you know, the people to move back to that area in Kenya where the trees was cut down. Because now suddenly there's an economy, there's a circular economy coming back because when the trees start growing up, the roots go out in the water, the fish come back, which means that they can go fishing again, which means that they can start interacting. And what's special about Cardano is that 
we are an inclusive blockchain, so we do a lot that you can actually participate in the blockchain with very low skills or very little money. So basically our hope is that the community will say, oh, that's the Cardano Forest. What else can I do on a blockchain? And they start maybe doing a, a stake pool and they start maybe doing some education or they start translating some of the educational material. And with that, suddenly they get an income which is not dependent on the area they live in, but it's depending on the global world we live in, which means that a money flow is going to the community plus an educational gap is being covered. So this digital divide is being you know, jumped over. And with that, suddenly we are, hopefully, we have another community out there who is going to strive. Now, uh, before the show, we were talking about blockchain and its applications in developing nations and the, uh, the ability to help uh, folks who may not have banking or even identity. Um, how does uh, Cardano Foundation and how does this chain support in that uh, way? The vision of Cardano is really to, to help the billions who don't have identity, who don't have access and don't have governance in this world to get part of a global community, but also to help the people in the developing countries to get access and to incorporate, and so we can help the people on the ground. And the Cardano Foundation, we said, if we define what success looks like, we are super biased, right? We just say, oh, that's success, and then we try and do that. So we actually took the, the uh, one stand back, and we chose the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Fantastic. Said, okay. It might not be the best framework, but it is a universally accepted framework. It holds a lot more than just, you know, environmental impact. It also holds about identity, it's about governance, it's about loads of different points, 17 to be exact. And uh, we are ensuring or trying to ensure at least that all projects we engage with from the Cardano Foundation, they at least cross over, you know, a couple of those points, because then we can measure our success in an external framework and not in an internal framework. Now, the um, United Nations SDGs uh, cover a wide range of initiatives. Um, and as a foundation, clearly you must have ESG goals or environment, society, governance. Uh, let's pick those apart. I want to start with the G side because we were talking about governance uh, earlier before the show. Uh, tell us about uh, how Cordano approaches governance and how you manage your community. Yeah, so manage our community is probably a, a too far of a statement, right? Okay. Cardano has a huge community Connect already. Connect with your community. And what we try to do is we try to enable the community and we try to uh, give them tools and give them access who allows them to, uh, to build on Cardano, to believe in Cardano and to trust in Cardano. And what is specifically important with the kind of blockchain we represent compared to others is that we are an open source public permissionless blockchain. What open source really means is that our code is visible to everybody, so you can take it on GitHub. It has a certain license, which means that you can copy paste it, which means that we here sitting in the Finiverse booth, we can actually spin up a copy of the Cardano blockchain today. Now, that copy of the blockchain would not be as strong as the actual Cardano mainnet, which leads us to think about what is the value of this? Because it cannot be the technology if we give the technology for free, not just the actual application, but also the code. So that means that the, the value of this is actually the amount of people and enterprises who give away a scarce resource, whether that is time, whether that is commitment, whether that is money, 
and believe in the mainnet, that actually secures the mainnet because that means you have more people doing transactions on the mainnet, you have more stake pool operators, you have more people looking at the code, and that means that the general mainnet becomes stronger. So the value of such a blockchain actually becomes the community. But what you want to ensure is that you get over this hurdle that Cardano was a, you know, founded by a federated set of entities, and you want to tr- slowly but surely transition that over to the people who is relying on Cardano for their daily lives, for their daily businesses, um, that they start having a way, a structured way to actually get a product to market fit, to ensure that the features they need in the next five to 10 years are being represented in the technical roadmap. And there is a way that those features actually are being encoded and released on the mainnet. From innovators to investors, get inside the minds of the industry's top leaders in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3, and beyond. Get ready to ride the next wave. This is Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Live from Singapore Fintech Festival. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're here at Singapore Fintech Festival, walking by, we're in the booth with uh, Frederick Gregard, who's the CEO of Cordano Foundation. Um, I like to think of blockchain almost like sedimentary layers. You've got the infrastructure layer, Cordano, and then in the middle, you've, you've got middleware and, and apps that are dApps. How do you attract developers to make sure that they're deploying on Cordano versus uh, competitive chains. So that's actually one of our Achilles, and you really hit the nail there. So the main language Cardano is using is a language called Haskell, which is a, a language which is very much used in the fintech world. It's coming from banking, capital markets, reinsurance. It's a, it's a language which has a very strong way of doing formal verifications on it. But it's also a mathematical and very difficult language compared to a, a language like Solidity. So everybody always says to me, yeah, you know, Fred, there's a lot more Solidity developers out there. And I'm saying, I disagree. If you look isolated at the blockchain space, there might be a lot more people who understand what Solidity and what blockchain is. But if you look into the general space, there's a lot of Scala, Rust, and Haskell developers out there who sits in large enterprises and do this for a living. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how do we incentivize these companies to believe in the infrastructure, which is called Cardano, and see the benefits of using this in their back office to upgrade their system so they can get access to a larger community, to a larger pool of people, instead of the local country or the local distribution they have today. By upgrading them and ensuring that they understand the actual value add and the security mechanisms, because a lot of this is about security. Think about it like this. Everything you do today everything you love is in a database, mm-hmm. right? So if you get married, it's recorded. If you get a kid, it's recorded. If you listen to music you love, it's recorded. If you have a house, it's recorded. If, everything you really do and love is somewhere in a centralized database. Now, if we believe that the future of Web3 is decentralized architecture where you can take control of what you cherish, what you hold as values, and not just give that away to a centralized infrastructure, We need to ensure that the blockchain who holds that data on behalf of you, which is governed and controlled, so your data is governed and controlled by you, right? Mm -hmm. We need to ensure that that never goes down. 
we need to ensure that it's always available, right? And when you have a situation that, that, that is suddenly not available, well, it might be attractive to go with a centralized provider who has everything in a cloud and has insurance around that. They kind of own your data, they own your identity. But if we can prove that this actually belongs in a Web3 blockchain infrastructure, who's not just here tomorrow, but is also here for the generations to come as a mm. principal architecture underlying capital markets and social systems, well, you suddenly have a value proposition which goes far beyond what we see today, where you need to ask for permission for your own data and somebody else is monetizing your data and you don't even own the footprint of your data. So, so this is a, a drastical change. Yeah. And we are asking companies to move to this decentralized operating model without necessarily giving them a roadmap and insurance that they can use this infrastructure and the infrastructure exists also in the next generation. And that's the battle we're having. No, and I understand conceptually why owning my own data makes sense, but it seems like uh, it's going to take some period of transition till we get there. Yeah, and I think what the enterprises we speak with is mostly interested in is not necessarily giving you the right to have your own data, but it's about an equal playing field. Got it. So very often what we see is that, uh, you know, small fintechs, like there's quite a few here, they're being engulfed by large banks or large companies. And that's not necessarily bad. When you see the co collaboration among companies, there's typically one who's a lot bigger than the rest, and the small is relying on the infrastructure from the big one. The problem is that the small one always has in the, in the neck, you know, they're like, oh, what if the small, or if the big one changes the rules of the game? What if the big one suddenly decides that I'm not relevant anymore? They own the infrastructure. They've, you know, they provided it sort of for free so we could do this collaboration. By using a permissionless blockchain, you even the playing field. That means that the small people can actually trust that the large corporation does not just change the rules as they're doing it. And the large corporation will have access to innovation from small companies and distribution yep. for small companies because they're now more engaged and more, they believe because they can prove that the big guy cannot just change the infrastructure. That creates a complete different trusting environment. Yep where suddenly people who normally didn't trust each other can trust each other. And that creates growth, that creates jobs, that creates innovation and opportunities. And hopefully that creates a change in community. Yeah, it starts breaking down some of the walled gardens, which are those closed systems into which we're invited to pour all of our life stories, photos and family members. So, no, it certainly has options. It certainly provides new opportunities. Um, Frederick, I'm interested. We've seen a lot of technology developed in the last three years during the pandemic. Um, how have you seen blockchain adoption over the over the last three years? So in general, the main case we've seen has really been Bitcoin. And it's been centered around how do we take the existing capital formation and distribution, uh, you know, away, not away from Wall Street, but how can we replicate that in a market outside Wall Street? and outside the bank's control. And we saw that it worked. Now, the next wave we're seeing right now is a wave of governance. So how do we take, now we know that the technology works. How do we take the minds and the brains from the existing industries and take their learnings and deploy that with the learnings of the blockchain? So really merging those two things to upgrade the system to come, become really better for everybody. The best example I have is, is actually, if you think about it, let me ask you a question. Do you have any stocks? I do. Have you voted? I have not. 
So most people have a good reason why they don't vote. It could be about the user experience. It could be about they can, simply cannot read the balance sheet. They don't understand what we're actually voting on. But when you nail it down, they have this idea that they are one person. And how can they possibly change that company when they don't even understand what's really happening underneath those you know, accounting standards and so on? Imagine a world where companies operating model is lying on a blockchain. Mm. And what I mean about that is that you, regardless of your talent and your skills, have the ability to go in and Google, let's say a bank. And any of us in, who's been through the last uh, financial crisis, we think, oh, what's the largest counterparty risk one single bank has? And if that turns out to be, let's say, a couple of billion, and they're saying they're a retail bank, your vote might not count, but you will show up to the General Assembly and you will say, dear chairperson, I own stock, I have one question. You say you are a retail bank and you have a $2 billion exposure towards one single counterparty. Can you tell me why? Now, the fact of the matter today is that many companies, even the reporting to the board is not on a level that the board necessarily understands what is happening in the engine room. The other side is that the shareholders, they are cut so much away from what the business actually does that it becomes only about yield and not about social impact. I believe a blockchain can go in and lower the cost of transparency for the company so they don't actually have to, you know, have thousands of, of, of stakeholders and shareholders who need to, you know, per letter ask for questions. But you actually have an access to the transparency of the books of the company, of the operating model. And by that, you can actually change the minds because suddenly the shareholders will start saying, oh, it's not just about yield. It's also about the local footprint you do in the community where you hire people. It's about the environmental footprint your company does when they are mining cobalt in Uganda, right? It's about more than just the yield. I actually want to be associated with a company who leaves something better behind than what they took over. And by that, suddenly you allow the shareholders the transparency, the insight to actually cast a vote. And when you start doing that, you will get different leaders, when you have different leaders, you will have different outcome. When you have different outcome, you will change the course of the world as we see it today. And we will get much more companies, which is not just about yield, but it's about us. It's about us as society betting on what we believe is the best for the community we live in, for the financials. I mean, it's, there is a yield component to it, but also for the exactly the footprint of Mother Earth today. No, I, I, I'm really impressed by the focus on societal goals that you have uh, for Cordano. Um, and obviously, you're making great strides around the world. Uh, where are some of those kind of brightest pockets? Are there examples of Cordano in developing worlds or um, outside of Wall Street that um, uh, resonated with you that uh, really bring to life a, a great application of Cordano? We've been doing uh, some deals with the country of Georgia for a while. And Georgia was a part of the Soviet Union. And they're extremely proud people. And it's actually where wine was invented. But because they were part of the Soviet Union, they were not able to distribute to the rest of the world. That means that for most of us, we think about Californian wines, we think about Spanish wines, because that's all the Don't marketing. Don't forget the French. Oh, and the French. <laughs> Mon Dieu. But... What we did was we ensured that we started by one winery and now we added the agricultural ministry of Georgia who can write directly on the blockchain. So we enabled them to put a part of their supply chain and the quality control, which is one of the toughest in the wine production for export in the world, to actually prove that on the blockchain. 
Then we turned around and said, you know, what does that do for the community? And we saw people, we call it blockchain citizens, who is tired of buying something on the internet, on the web too, and never know what comes in the door, right? You always have this a little bit doubt, you know, you know what actually comes. If I buy it on eBay, there's a different <laughs> expectation than if I buy it on an unknown website compared to, you know, all those things. So we saw that suddenly there, there were pockets and countries who were buying Georgian wine who's never done that before. And they sold out because every single wine bottle suddenly is on the blockchain. You can, it goes through the export. It has these quality stamps and so on. And, and now we added 15 more wineries there. And this idea that you can actually expose the production, the footprint of the production, but also the quality of the production into a new ecosystem, into the Web3 environment is... Is, is amazing because it gives them a way to distribute and to leapfrog 20 years of marketing efforts from other countries. And it gives them a way to prove that what they do over there in Eastern Europe is equally, if not better, than what we're doing in the Western world. And I think blockchain is probably one of the only means where you can actually do things like that. And the funny part is that in Georgia, every, every family has their own wine production. Wine is actually their identity. So what they are thinking about is that this is actually a way to show their identity, their nationality to the world expressed on a blockchain to the blockchain citizens. And definitely see the uh, benefits for the producers, but also for the consumers. Because if you're a fan of wine from a specific region, you want to make sure that it is really from there. So you're uh, covering off on the provenance issues. Mm -hmm. Another use case, which is uh, very, very important, but also a little bit sketchy, is that we're putting a couple of million students and schools in Ethiopia onto the Cardano blockchain. And it's very hard today to think about, you know, what's the right side of a line. So we won't go into politics in Ethiopia here. But what I will say is that if you have a country who has a lot of change, who has, a, you know, a history of change, that means that there will be refugees. People will be leaving. Mm. People will be pushed to leave which is bad, and we can't change that with a blockchain. But what we can do is to ensure that when you go to school in Ethiopia, you can prove to the rest of the world, not just that you have a certificate which is signed by some you know, teacher somewhere which nobody can verify and validate, but we can actually verify and validate that you've been and spent the hours in school, that you actually took these exams, that the exams, graduation, and the credentials can be hosted on a blockchain, which is immutable and is signed by third parties. That means that if you are unfortunate and you have to leave the country, you don't need to start in a new place necessarily as a taxi driver or as a whatever profession you can find. You might actually be able to use some of your life's work because you're able to prove that you actually spend the hours and you have the experience by doing that. So I think some of these use cases where you actually take identity and put it much deeper than just a copy of a passport and actually think about what have you done in your life which actually can add value to a society somewhere else. And when you are able to prove that without having a centralized authority who can go in and change that or somebody can ask questions towards that, it means that labor can move across borders. Much freer. And they can add more value to the societies in which will embrace them as refugees in a different way, right? So we can actually use the refugees with what they love to do instead of, you know, start questioning them and saying, oh, you never went to school or you never put in the hours. You just, you know, you bought it on the internet, right? And we cannot verify and validate that. We just see that you, you have a certificate, right? So I think this way of, of creating a, 
a new way, a, a, a deeper identity, which is not just measured in a national identity, but is measured in your life performance, your life work, your contribution to society. Getting that on a blockchain actually is going to add so much value across multiple jurisdictions, also in the Western countries. I can think of a million use cases, whether it's medical records, uh, education records. It'll, it gives you uh, authority and power over your own information, your own identity. Um, Frederick, we're running low on time. I just want to ask you, what are some of your objectives here at Singapore FinTech Festival? Uh, what's, uh, what, what brings you to the event this week? So I was uh, invited by the Singapore Monetary Authorities and the UK Financial Authorities to come here and interact with the regulators to be a part of um, a regulatory track. But what also attracted me here is that Singapore has for a long time been a technology hub. And the FinTech Festival here brings 50,000 companies and people together in a huge, let's say, it, when you walk around here, you see so many people who are solving real problems. Mm. And... N- that attracts me very much because when somebody's trying to solve real problems and I'm an infrastructure banker and I pre- represent a blockchain who can host metadata and host systems in a way probably no other blockchain can do, it allows me to talk to these passionate people, to talk distribution, to talk value add, to talk about how you reach a deeper and bigger uh, population than what you can do today and how you can do things in a more operationally efficient way. And people are super excited to hear about blockchain, 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 and not just crypto. And I think I love crypto, but I'm here to talk about blockchain to enterprises and talk about real life use cases and how you bring this to life. Fantastic. And um, I appreciate the time, but and I know my producers already told me to wrap things up, but I have to ask you, uh, the coin used in the Cordano chain um, has a really interesting provenance. Can you tell us about the name and how where that came from? So in Cardano, we have a very deep respect for history. And we think we can learn a lot in history, specifically in math. And um, the coin, the utility token in the Cardano network, um, there's more than actually 6 million tokens, different tokens in the Cardano network, but the, the utility token is called ADA. Uh, and it comes from ADA Lovelace. And I think in this world where we uh, very often speak about, you know, the value of genders and races and different things, um, ADA Lovelace were not just the, you know, the first female uh, programmer in the world. She was actually the first computer programmer in the world. So it's a tribute to Ada Lovelace that we call it Ada. And um, after the decimal is actually Lovelaces. Um, and uh, yeah, we feel very strongly to connect also to the past and learn from the past. Well, I would encourage our listeners to research Ada Lovelace, who was a mathematician in the 1800s and is credited with creating being the world's first computer programmer. Um, and it's a fascinating story. It's been a really uh, great uh, honor to have you here on Waves in the Finiverse. And uh, Frederick Gerard, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and good luck with Cordano Foundation and your time here at Singapore FinTech Festival. Thank you very much. And remember one thing, blockchain needs cryptocurrencies, but cryptocurrencies doesn't need blockchain. So let's talk about blockchain and how to change the world and the systems to make it even a better place and maybe solve some of those big problems out there. I'm going to go get a Cordano t-shirt and wear it everywhere and help continue the education. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. 
Thanks for listening.